can I can put my uh, my, my uh, jogging pants and tank top. <laughs> you wear whatever you want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can make whatever faces you want, and no one's capturing it. So yeah, I'll go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. This is Van Collar. We're at the West Coast. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a prominent member of the Legislative Assembly here in British Columbia. He was the founder and CEO of Kamloops-based software company iCompass Technologies. He's the former vice chair of the Thompson Rivers University Board of Governors and has served on the boards of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce and Kamloops Thompson United Way. First elected in 2013, he was appointed the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Upon re-election in 2017, he was appointed the official opposition critic for Municipal Affairs, Housing and TransLink. He was also a member of the Select Standing Committee on Legislative Initiatives. He is up for re-election. He is the BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops South Thompson. He is Todd Stone. Todd, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Mo. How are you doing? I'm doing so good. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you being here. I know you have a very busy schedule. No, no worries at all. That's, <laughs> and that's one, one heck of an introduction. Maybe we could shorten it up next time. Just say uh, all around good guy with three awesome daughters. Oh, man, I am so hyped for you. I, I want the <laughs> audience to be hyped, too. That's how I roll. I understand that it is a weird election. And I think it's safe to say not one that most British Columbians, myself included, actually wanted. It's your first election with the opposition party. So I have to ask, in the middle of a pandemic, what does your campaign look like? Specifically, what sort of challenges are you facing on the ground as you try to get your message out? Well, I mean, let's just back up. Uh, this is an election that, frankly, nobody wanted, uh, except for John Horgan. Uh, I haven't uh, come across very many people out uh, campaigning uh, to the limited extent that we're able to campaign who have said, uh, you know, I think now would be a great time in the middle of a pandemic to have, a, uh, have an election. Uh, <laughs> but we're, we're having an election, so uh, fair enough. Uh, look, it, it's very different. It feels it feels upside down. Um, mm -hmm. um, uh, we have Peter Millibar, who's my uh, my colleague in Kamloops North Thompson. He and I, uh, for the first time, uh, are running a joint campaign. So we we have one campaign manager, one office. The uh, the team is completely integrated. Uh, probably should have done that a long time ago. Actually, that's working really well. Um, we haven't done a heck of a lot of door knocking, uh, a little bit. Uh, we've dipped our toe uh, in, in those waters. We, I think, are going to do a bit more uh, moving forward. The reception has actually been quite positive. Uh, nobody has said to mm -hmm. us, hey, don't come to my door. Now, I, mm -hmm. I, I understand it's very different depending on the community that you're in. But, uh, you know, the, so, so the, the traditional campaigns that, that always had big rallies and events and lots of, uh, you know, and, and lots of door knocking, all that stuff uh, have really gone to, this, to, the, to, the, to the side here. And we're relying very heavily on um, uh, phoning. We, we've got a fantastic group of volunteers making lots of phone calls um, mm -hmm. and, and social media. Uh, social media is absolutely huge. If we didn't think it was critically important before, uh, it certainly is now. I mean, you just got to reinvent how you connect with voters so uh, so it's very different my third campaign uh, unlike uh, this is unlike uh, the previous two for sure yeah we're going to get into some of the issues but i have to ask you about Lori thronis the bc liberal mla in chilliwack kent he's running for re-election i called this on cknw in june that the issue with him was not going to go away this week reporters were repeatedly asking your party leader andrew wilkinson about thronis and the party's inclusion of him and other candidates who seem to have anti-LGBTQ views. Todd, you seem like a very inclusive guy. You've marched in pride parades. I don't doubt your sincerity, but if we are to accept that conversion therapy is homophobic, as per Christy Clark on this very podcast, then doesn't Lori's advocacy for some forms of conversion therapy represent a homophobic view within your party? Look, uh, I've got three daughters I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, they're ages 10 to 16. Uh, Chantel and I have raised our daughters uh, in a manner so that they don't look at other people through any kind of lens. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they don't, see, they don't see people as defined by uh, the color of their skin or their sexual uh, orientation. And, and that, 
makes me very, very proud. Um, I personally uh, do not support any uh, form of dis discrimination. Um, I believe that um, you know we, we, we live in a society that must be safe and inclusive for everyone. Um, that is the, the position of our party. Um, that uh, is the position of, of our leader. And, you know, I think the acceptance of, of everyone, all races, religion, um, sexual orientation, people's backgrounds, all of that, um, that acceptance is critically important. So um, I can't control the, the belief system or the actions of other people. Uh, what, I, what I can control, however, are, are my views and, and my, my beliefs. And um, certainly, uh, conversion therapy is is uh, I, well. Frankly, I, I I believe it's a it's a, it's a repugnant and barbaric practice, and I'm very very pleased and very supportive that the federal government is uh, is is uh, moving forward to ban that uh, that practice. Has this been a big issue within the party? Are people coming up to you and bringing this up? Is there discussion within party members? talking about this? Because this seems to be a big issue in the media, certainly social media. Well, look, you know well, Mo, political parties, uh, whether it's us or the New Democrats, the Green Party, Conservative Party, uh, parties are big families. Uh, they're, they're big, they're, they're big, they tend to be big tents. Mm -hmm. And within that, the, those tents tend to be uh, a broad range of views. Uh, there are New Democrats uh, that I, I know for a fact do not agree with one another on, on a wide range of issues because I've, I've, I've seen it firsthand in the legislature sure. uh, and, and behind the scenes and so forth. Certainly in our party, yeah, on these LGBTQ issues uh, uh, and, and related issues, there have been uh, vigorous uh, uh, discussions, and there there are there are different views held by by different folks um, in in the party. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think uh, you know what what matters the most is the 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 tone and tenor and position of the leader, the tone, the tenor, and the position of the party. Uh, and on that uh, on on that front, uh, I think we've been very very clear. Uh, that uh, you know, there's there's no room for discrimination of any kind in our in our party, and uh, and uh, you know that's that's the official uh, position, and that's my personal position as well. I can appreciate that. I'm not sure if it puts the issue to bed, and I wasn't expecting to do that today, but uh, fair enough. One of the big ideas out of the BC Liberal platform is opening up ICBC to competition. Am I correct in assuming that the plan is not to privatize ICBC, but keep ICBC and allow private insurers to compete in the auto insurance market? Uh, yes, you're absolutely correct on that. The, the plan that uh, Andrew Wilkinson announced a few, a few days ago uh, has, a, has a few components to it. Most notably, uh, we, if elected, would move forward with allowing private competition uh, in the auto insurance, uh, uh, the, on the basic side of the auto insurance uh, market in British Columbia. As you know, uh, the optional side has had private competition for, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the reality is the British Columbians today pay the highest um, auto insurance rates in the country, uh, and, uh, and that's got to change. We've, we've got uh, young drivers uh, in, this, in this province uh, as a result of a number of changes NDP have made recently uh, are, are getting hit with, you know, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars uh, a year uh, premiums, uh, which is just completely outrageous. So our, our plan is to, to allow for private competition uh, as, uh, and, and, to, and to really double down on uh, our effort to ensure that rates are as affordable as they possibly can be, uh, and especially for, for young drivers. So, uh, you know, the, not to get too far into the weeds, but, but on that last point, uh, what we're proposing is that a new driver that their their premium be based on um, uh, based on a, a driving record as if they had driven have been driving for two years. Uh, if they if they were in a, a driver education program, it would be four mm -hmm. years. Um, that measure alone will significantly reduce uh, the premiums uh, that so that that young driver would have to pay. So I, I you know based on the uh, public feedback, I got to tell you through this campaign, um, you know that that particular announcement. Uh, the um, uh, allowing private competition uh, uh, in uh, uh, to compete with ICBC uh, it's probably right up there in the top two in terms of just just massive uh, and very positive response that, that we've received. Does that young drivers clause would that apply to the private companies as well? Uh, I, my understanding is it would. Yes, I, I, you know the the. the 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 point here being that that young drivers are 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 
well, for lack of a better phrase, are getting hosed uh, by mm-hmm. SPC. And, uh, and, and I get, you know, there's, there's, uh, if you look at it strictly through an actuarial risk-based lens, you go, well, if somebody's only for a year or nine months, um, you know, they're, 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 you know the, the stats indicate that uh, they're at a higher you know, risk of, of having a, a fender bender. But, but we shouldn't start from that because we should start from a place of saying all drivers, um, uh, all drivers are, are, are to be treated equally. And, and you're, 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 the rates you pay should be based on your driving record should be based mm-hmm. on, on what actually happens when you're out on the road. Uh, if, you're, if you're a 21-year-old driver and you've had your license for four or five years uh, you've had, and you've had no accidents whatsoever, no claims, uh, why should your rates, why should you not be, uh, be given the, the lowest rates possible? Um, that's not how the system works. When we open up the market to private insurers, doesn't that create a market where you have competitors perhaps driving down the prices in more lucrative areas of the industry while the less desirable drivers the more expensive ones including perhaps drivers in rural communities are burdened onto ICBC effectively boxing ICBC into a corner of the market where they can't be financially sustainable well and that is uh, absolutely uh, a concern to be uh to to focus on and uh, and what we've said is look there there are a multitude of different jurisdictions across North America not just in Canada but across North America uh, that have crossed this bridge uh, have put in place models uh, that for the most part are almost entirely private uh, and uh, and there there can and, and should be measures put in place to to protect uh, uh, certain uh, or some you know those 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 uh, drivers that end up um, yeah, often through no fault of their own. I, I I know of a you know a friend of mine who's had you know four claims in the last two years and and they were all um, you know accidents that happened that were not were not uh, his fault. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know his his insurance uh, was impacted uh, at least in two of those cases. Um, you, you government can put in put some measures in place to to protect uh, you know all drivers and and cert- you know certainly protect them from uh, predatory uh, pricing um, on the part of uh, private insurance companies. When we look at different jurisdictions in Canada, aren't the cheapest auto insurance systems found in provinces with public insurers that use no fault models such as Manitoba and Saskatchewan? Well, I, I, certainly, there's um, uh, it, it, again. It depends on on the age of the driver and where they live in the, in the province that you're talking about. There's a wide variation in in uh, in Saskatchewan. There's a wide variation in rates paid in, in um, Ontario uh, or in Manitoba, um, as as there are in other jurisdictions that uh, that have blended models of um, uh, you know some some no fault and some um, you know traditional um, traditional insurance. Saskatchewan offers a choice. The vast majority of folks in, in the Saskatchewan model choose to uh, uh, to to purchase the the less expensive no fault option. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but look, it, it it every every province is unique. Uh, the the risk factors are unique in every province. We've got much bigger mountains here than they do in in, in Manitoba. Uh, you know, so there's there's sure. all kinds of there's all kinds of factors that come into play. But uh, uh, I don't think there's a general rule of thumb that rates are are less expensive in, in jurisdiction A or B based on you know model X or model Y. I, I think it. Um, you know what? What what we do take from all of the 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 analysis we've done is that those jurisdictions that uh, that offer competition that allow the private sector to to come in and compete for a customer's business uh, typically uh, offer rates in that jurisdiction that are lower than they would otherwise be. BC Attorney General David Eby has been very critical of you in your past role as the Minister of Transportation responsible for ICBC. Be it the 2015 video that purportedly shows you announcing the transfer of an ICBC training facility in Burnaby to the Automotive Retailers Association, which did not go through, and a 2014 report by Ernst & Young commissioned by the Finance Ministry that apparently had deleted pages about ICBC facing a financial crisis. What is your response to the accusation that ICBC was mismanaged under the BC Liberals, leading to the dumpster fire that it is today, particularly under your watch? 
Well, uh, first off, in, in terms of the, um, the, the Ernst & Young report that, that you mentioned there, it was actually a 2015 Ernst & Young report. So it was a claims management review. It was one of about okay. nine, nine or ten uh, reviews that uh, I had undertaken uh, at, during my time as minister. Um, to be absolutely clear, uh, every single recommendation that was in that report uh, was actually implemented by our government. Now, the, what David Eby uh, uh, has uh, put out there in an effort to misinform British Columbians on this point, uh, it, it, he has put out there a copy, or they, the government or the NDP leaked a, a copy of a, of a draft version of that 2015 uh, ENY report uh, that um, it included uh, two additional uh, items for consideration of government, one being the implementation of soft tissue uh, damages uh, or caps on soft tissue damages, and the second being the implementation of no-fault insurance. Mm-hmm. These were policy items that uh, were not endorsed by government. Uh, they, those were two policy items that, that my, my colleagues in government did not want to proceed with. And so um, I didn't even bother bringing those forward uh, for uh, for um, you know a formal consideration because there was no appetite whatsoever uh, to proceed on those two fronts. Um, so that's you know that's that's the fact of what actually happened. On the on the broader question of of ICBC, uh, look, we w- there was no question that in you know leading up to 2017 there were uh, there were financial uh, challenges at ICBC. In fact, there had been for uh, a couple of years prior to that. Mm-hmm. I, I was resolute in always trying to do everything I possibly could uh, to, to, to ensure that the rates that drivers paid were as affordable as possible. That included uh, throwing over $3 billion worth of initiatives uh, at uh, ICBC to, to in, ensure that it remained on a sustainable path that as a result rates could be kept affordable. Um, we implemented a, a, a new transformation program, fraud, uh, new fraud tools, um, luxury car premium uh, that, that, w- w- was, uh, that was increased. Uh, there were procurement strategies, uh, more claim stuff, on and on and on. A huge road safety program. Um, all of this, again, was, was to try and keep rates affordable. Um, we recognized going into 2017 that... Um, that more needed to be done. And so we commissioned Ernst & Young again. Uh, these consulting firms uh, do, a, do a good business with governments. doesn't matter which party's in power. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? We, we commissioned Ernst & Young again, and, and uh, they provided their, their final report. This was the most comprehensive uh, report with recommendations moving forward that had ever been done at ICBC. And it was sitting on my desk right before the uh, election started, like literally, uh, I believe, a few days before the writ was dropped uh, in that May 2017 election. Obviously, we know what happened in that election. Uh, came out the other side. There was a transfer of power. That, that report was sitting on David Eby's desk, presumably on the first day he walked into his office. He took it and he threw it in the, in the trash can uh, and didn't implement anything because he didn't trust anything in it. And so he launched a new report, which wasted a, a whole, a whole uh, year before uh, additional actions could be taken by governments, let alone considered. So, you know, what was a $225 million financial challenge uh, in 2017 uh, suddenly became, you know, only months later, a $1.3 billion challenge at ICBC. And since that point, ours has been lost um, under, under David Eby's management at ICBC. Everything he's tried to right the ship uh, that he promised British Columbians would work uh, has failed. The um, $5,500 cap on soft tissue uh, de- damages was supposed to save the corporation a billion dollars. It hasn't. Uh, the mm-hmm. driver base model was supposed to reduce uh, rates for drivers. It hasn't. Um, you know, he tried to make changes to court rules and so forth. Um, he got his hand slapped pretty hard by the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, so everything that uh, that he's tried to do hasn't hasn't worked, and and it, it resulted in. Uh, the government uh, deciding to uh, implement no-fault insurance just before uh, the last election, and uh, um, you know, but what else? What else can you say? They, uh, you know, we we believe ICBC is is broken, uh, and it's time to time to uh, allow for private competition uh, in order to assure motorists of the most affordable rates possible. Can you quickly clarify how many billion were lost under David Eby? You cut out there, and just in that one little blip, I missed that. 
Sure. Well, it, it, the 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 financial challenge at uh, sort of at the time of the election uh, was about two hundred and twenty-five million dollars, mm-hmm. and uh, you know uh, he was sworn in in July of twenty seventeen. Uh, the government first updated the numbers, uh, I believe, in in September of that year, and uh, the two twenty-five suddenly changed to about four and a quarter, and then it went from from that uh, to in, in November it, it was bumped up again. Uh, to um, a couple hundred million dollars more. And then suddenly, uh, about two weeks before BC Liberals voted for a new leader in a, in a, in a certain uh, Liberal leadership race, uh, it magically, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the projected loss at ICBC and the birth of the dumpster fire, um, you know, the loss of $1.3 billion uh, was suddenly put out there by, by the NDP. I mean, it, politics is politics. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a big boy. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I sometimes have to sit back and just kind of chuckle because it's, um, you know, the, the, the extent to which, uh, you know, David Eby has, um, um, you know, ma- maneuvered the numbers at ICBC, um, it, you know, I, I, think he, I think he would actually be able to, to do his own show in Las Vegas, uh, some kind of magic show. It's, it's, it's quite something to behold. Uh, but I think British Columbians see, you know, have seen through it, and I think British Columbians recognize that uh, you know, the NDP have had three and a half years to uh, address uh, increasing um, rate, uh, 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 insurance rates. They haven't done so. Uh, rates have gone up by 48%. The average driver is paying 48% more today under the NDP uh, than they were in 2017. And I, I, would, you know, I would end by saying uh, in the previous 10 years of our government, uh, driver premium has only increased by 25% cumulatively, so you know, roughly in line with inflation. I, you know, those are the two contrasting records. Let's talk about another person that you occasionally butt heads with. Two weeks ago on the podcast, I took BC Liberal messaging, including quotes from you, to BC Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Selena Robinson on the accusation that temporary modular housing and the hotel purchases to house the homeless are simply warehousing people without wraparound services. Selena said there are communities all over this province who are so grateful for this housing, referring to temporary modular housing, and that the BC Liberals, yourself specifically included, were quote-unquote lying about there being no wraparound services at these sites. In fact, she says it's insulting to the frontline workers, the people there, to suggest that what they do doesn't count. Your side says there are no services for the homeless in these housing facilities. She says there are services. Who am I as a voter to believe? <laughs> well, it, sound, it sounds like uh, uh, Selena got pretty wound up in your, in your conversation with her. And she, uh, you, you know, she, she and I uh, actually, um, if I, if I, if I, if I may say, I, you know, get along quite well outside of the legislature. Um, you know, when we go in that legislative chamber, we, uh, we, we definitely butt heads. Uh, she's there to do a job. I'm there to do a job. I think mm-hmm. um, even though she spent uh, a term in opposition, I think she and some of her colleagues have forgotten uh, that, uh, you know, the opposition has an important job to do. It, it is our job to, uh, when you're in opposition, to hold the government accountable, to, um, to highlight uh, where the government's falling short, to, uh, but to also be proactive in suggesting uh, you know, uh, suggesting ideas uh, to government. So, um, when, when it comes to you know homelessness and and um, you know supportive housing and, and so forth, I and I want to want to say this as well. Um, this is being the housing critic, and and particularly uh, with respect to supportive housing. So this has been one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Um, it's brought me mm-hmm. unbelievably up close and personal with with all kinds of people that um, you know. I, I, I may have never met, you know, lots of vulnerable uh, individuals, homeless individuals, amazing service providers in, in the housing sector, uh, lots of local government officials. Um, you know, I've really um, taken to heart the time I've, I've been able to spend touring uh, the province and meeting with people in their own communities. And I certainly have been, been all over. And, I, and I've come to a few conclusions, you know, number one, this isn't about, you know, fearing each other. Um, it's about, uh, it's, it's about creating, um, you know, creating communities where where everybody 
uh, has dignity, where everybody has a right to safety, uh, where everyone is respected, and and where no one's marginalized. So I, you know, I, I want to say that very positive piece first. But in response to your 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 specific question um, on um, housing supports and and Selena, um, you know, suggesting that what we're we've been saying in the opposition is 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 not true. Um, uh, the the reality uh, is that uh, by by every measure uh, by every indication uh, the supports are just not there for people who need them. Um, I've uh, and I'm and it's not just me. I mean that this is what service agency folks are 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 saying. This is what local governments uh, are saying. Um, this is what small businesses are saying. And you can see it with your own eyes. Uh, I mean we have a we have a, a two public health emergencies underway right now. There's the there's the COVID. 19 pandemic and there's and there's an overdose crisis. Um, there is a tremendous uh, increase uh, in in um, overdoses, overdose deaths, uh, homelessness is up. And I'm not I'm not going to you know sit here and say that that that's all entirely uh, the the NDP's fault. I mean the pandemic has certainly made a, a tough situation uh, worse, uh, but. But it it was you know most of those indicators, uh, including homelessness, they were they were getting worse uh, uh, prior to the pandemic hitting. Um, but at the end of the day, um, while the, the the minister prides herself on talking till she's blue in the face about all this housing that she's delivered around the around the province, number one, um, it's not true. The numbers she puts out there just just aren't born in fact, and we'll talk about that hopefully more in a moment. But but m- more importantly. Um, you know, as one service provider said to me uh, the other day, they provide a huge number or look after a huge number of the, the supportive housing units in Canlos. And, and, and this gentleman said to me, you know, housing first is great. And that's, that, that's, that's an important first step. But what's next? Where's the supports? Where are the supports for people to get better? Um, you look next door in Alberta, uh, Alberta is spending $180 million on recovery programs. They just recently announced 400 recovery beds um, in every corner of the province. Um, you know, here in uh, here in British Columbia, uh, we have got a rapidly deteriorating situation in in all of our downtowns and communities across BC. Um, it is not the fault of the vulnerable and marginalized and homeless populations in those communities at all. And and when I see what's happening, uh, it it just it breaks your heart. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to make any apologies to Selena Robinson or anyone. Um, for you know, having my eyes opened wide to to the challenge in front of us, and not allowing the, the Selena Robinson you know to 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 take one inch more uh, credit for what she says she's doing to solve these problems than is actually happening on the ground uh, in in communities across our province. Are you saying there are no services, or the services are not adequate enough? Uh, I have never said uh, in, in reference to the whole province or to an entire community that there are no services. Um, you know, this uh, for her, if, if indeed that is what she's, uh, she, no, that's not what she said. said. That's not what she said. I'm clarifying for myself. Sure. Okay. Well then, then that's uh, fair enough. I I have never said there are no supports and services. Of course there are some supports and services out there. Uh, But again, you know, anyone that, that, uh, you know, decides to walk into uh, the downtown east side or walk into Yale town in Vancouver or walk uh, along Douglas street in Ve- downtown Victoria or, or go and go and walk past Strathcona park or go and walk past uh, uh, Beacon Hill park in Victoria or come to Kamloops, my hometown and take a stroll with me down West Victoria street. Um, you will see the pain and the misery and the heartache of, of countless individuals, human beings uh, who are, are, are literally uh, wandering uh, the streets and, uh, w- and they have nowhere to go. They, they, they might have a, a room in a recently constructed modular housing um, building, which is, which is great. In fact, the modular housing program was initi- initiated under our former government. Um, but to take someone um, off of the, out of a park or off of the streets and to put them into a, a unit of housing and not to ensure that that individual's unique needs, whether they be mental health, or addiction, or a combination of both, that that person's unique needs are, are, are not met uh, so that they can access a path to recovery and get better. Uh, we're failing that individual. And then, and then of course, we have the, all of the other unintended consequences 
where yes, uh, you know, property crime is up and break-ins are up, and and you know, there's an increasing feeling in many communities that that um, certain streets and areas um, you know don't feel as safe as they used to before. Uh, you hear stories about. Um, you know, moms uh, out with their kids in parks and having to sweep the park first for needles, all those types of things. But uh, I don't blame the, uh, or, or look at the, uh, the vulnerable uh, individuals and the homeless uh, folks, as I say all of this and say, you know, with, with, a, with an eye on them that they're, they're, it's their fault. It's, it's not, they need to get better. They want to get better. Um, this government has not made supports for those people um, available as needed in the communities uh, uh, where these issues are, are really becoming prevalent. You also noted that 3,000 affordable housing units were built under the BC NDP far below their targets. Selena insisted that there are 25,000 affordable housing units built under construction or in the pipeline, which means that permitting is done, the project is approved, money is going out. She said your numbers were incorrect cherry-picked, and not counting all the affordable housing projects. You made an allusion to this earlier. Can you explain the discrepancy between your two numbers? Oh, uh, absolutely. I, you know, and I, uh, if we were on a video here, I, you would see, I, I, would, I would be holding up the, uh, uh, a document from uh, BC Housing. It's their, called their Affordable Housing Investment Plan Report. It's a fourth quarterly update. It's the latest update that's available. Um, BC Housing puts this out um, uh, as a, you know, I think a, an accountability document to to basically say, you know, here's here's where what the targets are on the 114,000 units of housing that has been promised by the NDP, and here's how we're tracking in each of the different categories. Um, the, the these are not my numbers. This is these are not numbers that that I'm making up. These are not the Urban Development Institute's numbers. These are not anyone. These are these are the BC Housing's uh, BC Housing's numbers, which means uh, as the housing minister, they're Selena Robinson's numbers. And you know, to uh, the end of Q4, uh, there 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 are 2,963 uh, units of of, of 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 affordable housing in this overall plan and on the target of 114,000 that have actually been opened. Now, sure, uh, there's there's another 5,900 and and change uh, uh, that are, that are in the quote unquote initiation phase, but Mo. It, it, you go back. Um, you go back to the first quarter, a quarterly update uh, that BC Housing put out, um, and and the, that that uh, update they define initiation phase as the phase where uh, there are no dollars attached, uh, meaning the, the the projects are not funded yet. They're they're notional. They've been announced. Um, you continue through this report with a few other highlights. Um, the 161 units uh, that have been opened uh, are rental units. Um, as of the date of this report, there are no units of Indigenous housing open to date. Um, 65% of the Indigenous housing units that the government's announced are, uh, have no funding attached to them yet. Uh, there's only 80 units of women's transition housing uh, that's actually uh, um, have been, have been opened. Um, and, and the vast majority of, the, of the, the units that are opened are modular housing, which were needed. You know, that was part of the rapid respond, uh, response to homelessness. But the point here is um, uh, the government is nowhere near the, the, the 24,000 uh, that, uh, that Selena says uh, they have delivered. And deliver doesn't mean that you've approved there, that you announced it. Doesn't mean you've approved it. Doesn't mean that uh, um, it, you know, it's some, in some, you know, quote, some kind of initiation phase. It means that you've actually, um, you've, you've delivered, uh, you've opened these, uh, these units. They're actually, you know, they've got real people in them. Um, so, by that measure, um, huh, you know, 114,000 units of housing over, over 10 years, government's um, on a pace right now um, where it's going to take 100 years for them to deliver on, on that commitment. So you're darn right, so I'm going to continue to highlight that and hold them accountable uh, for the, the, the shoddy progress uh, that, um, that the minister is making and delivering on the commitments that she and her party made uh, to the people of British Columbia when it comes to affordable housing. I need to ask you the flip side of the question that I asked Selena. So without telling me to go ask Selena Robinson, where is Selena Robinson drawing that 25,000 number from? Well, uh, Selena Robinson um, uh, is, is drawing her $25,000 number, I, I assume, 
through a combination of uh, the uh, the details that are in this this uh, this affordable housing investment plan report from BC Housing uh, that uh, that reflects again um, the total number of completed. Uh, to- it breaks it all out. So I'm looking at page four here, right? Total number of of uh, completed, a total number under construction, total number in development, total number initiated, and so forth. Um, you know, as, as of the date of this document, they were at 13,474 total on the 24,000. But again, that includes, um, you know, a, a initiated and in development. Um, I, so I don't, I don't know how she arrives at 24,000. Um, and I certainly don't know how they're going to accomplish 114,000 based on, based on the record to this point. Selena says that based on what happened in 2001, the BC Liberals, if they were to win this election, would cancel all the projects in the permitting process. Is that true? Oh, that—that that, I mean, that what a what an absolutely insane and crazy thing to say. Um, uh, I mean, seriously. Uh, I hope she was 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 kind of chuckling when she said that. Um, you know, our our housing plan, which we're going to be launching uh, in this campaign soon. Uh, is, uh, is is going to reflect a significant uh, commitment to actually building uh, building the housing supply that we actually need uh, in this province. We you're, you're going to see a, a wide range of uh, of tax and regulatory uh, even even zoning and assessment uh, initiatives that are all going to be focused on uh, unleashing more supply faster and 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 supply of all types. You know the NDP will say, oh, the Liberals just stand for condo development. You know, nonsense. Uh, you're going to see a very thoughtful, uh, well-detailed plan that that's going to to um, uh, you know illustrate to British Columbians, uh, you know, some some pretty bold steps that need to be taken so that we can get uh, projects approved faster at the local level, so that we can reduce the uh, and, and reduce the cost of uh, of construction. Uh, I mean, I think you you know this well, Mo. It, it's about two hundred thousand dollars of taxes and fees and charges that are levied on to every door, every unit of, of new housing in 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 Metro Vancouver um, has about two hundred thousand dollars of added cost uh, uh, put on top. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of work to do there, but we're gonna we're gonna roll up our sleeves and and um, I, th- I think uh, I think folks are gonna respond favorably to uh, to the plan that we put in front of them um, in, in the coming days. One area where Selena expressed frustration was getting the federal government to the table. We know that BC only received 0.5% of federal money from the National Housing Strategy Program. So what would you do differently than Selena Robinson to ensure that the federal government is at the table and contributing their fair share? Because it sounds like they're not interested in BC. Well, and look, this is a perennial challenge for 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 governments of all political stripes in British Columbia, in the sense that uh, you know, physically and I think mentally to a certain extent, we are a long ways away from uh, the corridors of power in Ottawa, and so it it, 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 it to be on the radar screen out there, uh, it, it requires a, a consistent, steadfast. Uh, a, a focus on on um, having your hand up, um, you know, uh, being a, building a great relationship with your with your corresponding ministers at the federal level. Uh, I mean, when I saw that the National Housing Co Investment Fund, which you referred to here in your question, that you know, I, I think the actual numbers about just under one point five billion uh, um, of funding that has been released from that federal housing fund to to um, I think it, as of January. Uh, you know, 0.5% works out to about 7.3 million. I mean, just think about that. $7.3 million coming to British Columbia uh, on a total of, of 1.5 billion that's been pushed out across the country. It's, that's outrageous. Um, but I think it reflects uh, uh, the fact that, that Selena and her colleagues haven't built as good a relationships with some ministers at the federal level as they, as they perhaps suggest that they have. Um, I, I will, you know, cut uh, Selena some slack for, you know, probably, probably, probably takes, uh, you know, having been a cabinet minister with a, with a learning curve, uh, you know, probably takes six months to figure out where the washrooms are once you're sworn in, and another, you know, uh, another six to, to nine months to figure out uh, the complexities of, of, you know, your top uh, uh, or your most prevalent five or six files. But uh, you know, come on, we're we're three years into the NDP government, and uh, this is the the results that uh, the NDP are able to generate out of Ottawa. I, I know when I was a minister, I, I had to work with uh, both 
initially the federal uh, conservatives, uh, you know, I was the transportation minister. So I, I had to work really closely with a number of, of conservative ministers. And, and then there was a change in government federally. And um, you build uh, immediately uh, set to work to, to, to um, get known by, get the cell phone number of, and get in front of uh, the federal ministers as quickly as possible. And I did that uh, when, uh, when the Liberals took over as well. So, you know, and, and as a result, we were able to, to actually extract a, um, a bit more than uh, our fair share, um, certainly on the stuff I was responsible for uh, in my four years in cabinet. On the topic of housing, we have to talk about the speculation tax. The BC Liberals have been very critical of the spec tax, although it seems to be quite popular. 76% of British Columbians agree with it, and that support is about the same for BC Liberal voters too. It put 11,000 rental units back on the market. It's brought in a couple hundred million dollars. So what is the problem with the spec tax as it is right now? Well, first and foremost, uh, it's not a it's not a speculation tax. Uh, it, it's a it's a wealth tax. Uh, it it, it uh, punishes British Columbians and and Canadians. Uh, it's done uh, uh, much less than the NDP would like to suggest to actually improve vacancy rates or drive down uh, uh, housing prices. Um, it, you know, in fact, when the you know the first report came out uh, from government as to how many uh, people actually pay the speculation tax, it's I think it was 0.03 percent uh, of the population. So it's it, you know the problem of speculation again. This is another you know David Eby uh, you know uh, a job uh, you know the the you know the the uh, the the story that's built up about the rampant speculation that's taking place in 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 the housing market. Um, just hasn't been borne out by uh, by those by the government's own facts. Um, what the spec tax uh, has done, though, which has been very negative, is it's driven down construction uh, of new units of housing in uh, communities across the province. It's 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 resulted in condo presales plummeting about sixty percent over the last three years. Um, new condo projects coming on stream have, have declined in that same period by about forty six percent. Uh, housing starts overall are declining, and and notably, while the government likes to you know trumpet uh, the 115 million dollars of revenue that the spec tax is um, is is generating uh, for for the province, um, you know, at the same time, uh, property transfer tax revenue is down by about 325 million dollars. So uh, you know again, there's there's some NDP math for you. What what. What, what one needs to do is talk to the mayors in the communities that are most impacted by this tax, uh, the mayor, mayors in Metro Vancouver, the mayors in, in Kelowna, West Kelowna, uh, even, even uh, the mayor of Langford in the premier's own riding. Uh, and they'll tell you that uh, this tax has had a chilling effect on construction, has cost a whole bunch of jobs, um, and it, it needs to go. So what do you do in its place? Because we all, we all want to make sure that there are pro- appropriate measures in place to, to deal with speculation. Uh, what we have um, suggested, which was actually uh, embodied in a, a bill that um, uh, that Andrew Wilkinson introduced um, uh, shortly after becoming our, our, our leader, uh, and it's a it, it, it's a bill that would impose an additional fifty percent tax on the profit gained from buying a presale home and flipping it before the home is built. I mean, that's that's actual speculation. Uh, so let's do that. Um, um, and, you know, if we're fortunate to win this, uh, this upcoming election, um, that is certainly what we will proceed with. But shouldn't vacant homes also be punished because that's supply that could be tapped into quite easily? Well, um, uh, you know, a vacancy tax like, like uh, Vancouver has and, and, um, and has been requested by other communities, I mean, that's that's uh, another matter. Um, we're not uh, proposing in our in our plans to um, to eliminate uh, vacancy taxes. We're not going to eliminate the foreign buyers tax. You know, we we do believe that there need to be um, uh, again appropriate measures in place that uh, that strike as good a balance as you can uh, in terms of um, ensuring that there are housing product uh, afford- as affordable as possible for British Columbians first. Uh, all the while uh, making sure that we're we're minimizing the obstacles to investment in this province. We're we're minimizing the obstacles to new housing construction. Uh, we're minimizing the obstacles to to uh, accelerating the supply of housing that we so desperately need. If we don't build more housing faster, uh, and I say this till I'm I'm blue in the face, uh, 
the, the, nothing else is much else is going to make a difference uh, insofar as as making housing more affordable for British Columbians. And remember, that was a hallmark commitment of of uh, the John Horgan NDP uh, government after being elected. I mean, they ran on it in the last election. We will make life more affordable. We will make uh, housing more affordable. Well, um, not not uh, so fast there, uh, John Horgan. The housing prices are up three years later, rents are up. The average rent in Metro Vancouver is, is uh, $2,064 higher uh, per year today than it was three years ago. Uh, so, you know, lots of work to do here, but we've got to, we've got to um, focus on, on accelerating uh, supply as much as we possibly can. And to that end, again, the speculation tax is, um, uh, is uh, just one of those measures that the NDP had, had put in that's highly, highly flawed and is certainly not, uh, not making it easy for, for new, a new housing supply to come into uh, communities around the province. We have to talk about the proposed PST cut from the BC Liberals. I made a very satirical case on CKNW that I'm very excited for a year without the PST because it allows someone like me, who is very fortunate, to buy a brand new Lincoln Continental and save 10 grand, which is true, and a Lincoln goes for 70K. So I'm a fan of the proposal, but I don't know how taxpayers would feel about my car purchase contributing 10 grand to the province's debt or cut of services. Can you make the case for me how the PST cut rather than targeted tax cuts or direct spending is the best route for the economy and for all British Columbians? Because I don't know how many British Columbians want to see me get 10 grand off a new Lincoln Continental. <laughs> well, fair enough. But I mean, let's just take a step back here. And we'll, we, we have record levels of unemployment, like hundreds of thousands of people uh, are still out of jobs uh, that had jobs before the pandemic hit uh, six months ago. Uh, we have small businesses failing by the day, tens of thousands at risk of, of failing over the winter. Uh, we've got the, the, the threat of COVID hanging over our heads. Um, if there ever was a time uh, for, uh, for, for, for a bold initiative to be put on the table uh, to best inoculate uh, British Columbians and the economy of this province uh, from absolute catastrophe in the months ahead, uh, it is a measure like this. Uh, the, the PST announcement uh, is not a, we're getting rid of it forever um, uh, commitment. It is a, we, we will eliminate it for one year, this, this forthcoming year, uh, and then we will put it back in place at, at the rate of 3% until British Columbia's e economy fully recovers. Now, this uh, measure is a blunt instrument, but blunt instruments are often required when you're in, you know, very difficult, challenging and, and, and a crisis situation, which I would argue we, we are in the midst of, not just from a health perspective, but from an economic perspective. So the measure will save the average family uh, of four, uh, I think, $1,700 uh, per year. Um, the NDP say this is a tax just for the wealthy, which is uh, which is nonsense. Um, it, it, the PST has more often, uh, or but by more uh, economists and analysts than, than not, has been long viewed as a regressive tax that impacts lower and middle income folks greater than, than higher income folks. Uh, 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 folks at the lower end of the income scale spend a higher percentage of their goods on items that are, that are uh, taxable, uh, that have the PST applicable. This is not about luxury cars, which by the way, will continue to be subject uh, to the PST under our proposal. Not the Continental, though. The Continental falls under that threshold, just to be clear. Right. Well, fair, <laughs> enough. Uh, uh, fair enough. But I, I mean, if you think of, a, of, of, of a actual individuals and families out there, the impact. So this is what people have been telling me as they've been learning more about our PST proposal. Uh, this means that you know, for the one year, you don't pay any PST on the natural gas to heat your home. That's a, that's a big bill. Uh, and no PST on, on uh, shampoo and soap and toothpaste. No, no PST on pet supplies. Uh, stationary, hardware, sporting equipment, paper towel, I and mean, the list goes on and on. Um, Auto clothing, appliances, you know, your, your restaurant bill, um, you know, liquor, the 10% tax, uh, you know, won't be there for this one year. So um, it, it, this is going to uh, enable, a, uh, is going to provide for an immediate injection um, of, um, of, of, of dollars uh, into the economy, uh, um, by by letting individuals and families choose how to spend uh, these dollars and stretch these dollars further instead of sending them to Victoria, you 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 contrast that with the NDP's economic um, recovery plan, if you can call it that, where 
you know, the, the legislature uh, convenes in Mar on March 23rd this year. We unanimously endorse a, a, a package of supports for British Columbians, including one and a half billion dollars of, of supports for small business. Uh, John Horgan sits on that cash the entire uh, last six, seven months, uh, calls an election, and then decides to, to hand out $1,000 checks to, to all British Columbians, you know, buy you with your own money. I, I mean, that's, that's outrageous. Uh, we're saying leave the money in people's pockets for a year um, uh, to, to stimulate the economy. Uh, and John Horgan saying, I'm going to take more of your money. And uh, you know, it certainly has increased or, or added 23 new taxes, but I'm going to take more of your money and I'll give a little bit of, of it back to you. So we think this is going to work. It, it's, it, it's not perfect, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's a measure that is intended to offer uh, the kind of stimulus that we think our, our economy is going to need and that, that British Columbia's families are going to need to, to get through this winter. In opposition, it is your role to be critical of everything that government does and has done. Narrowing that down, what are the three biggest failures of this NDP government, in your opinion? Well, let me start but first by, again, saying, offering something positive here. Like, I, 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 we started off the podcast and I, and I mentioned uh, that it, it's also the role of the opposition from time to time to to be collaborative and, and positive and constructive, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to offer a couple examples of that. First, uh, uh, and this, this is more of a sort of a general example, I'm really proud of the fact that I was one of 87 MLAs that checked the parties and politics at the door and got 110% behind Bonnie Henry and the public uh, uh, health community uh, to uh, uh, to to uh, marshal the resources and the supports necessary to help us all get through this uh, the, the you know the the initial stages and up to this point on 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 the COVID pandemic, um, you know we will continue to to do that and work closely with with Bonnie Henry and her team. I think that's what British Columbians expected, uh, and I think that made all of us proud uh, to to be a Canadian and a British Columbian. Um, the the other piece that uh, you know is more of a personal note. Uh, uh, you know, I'm really proud of the work that I did on, on vaping, uh, vaping uh, legislation. Um, we had a, a dramatic, you know, we were witnessing a dramatic increase in, in youth vaping rates. Um, I didn't have any uh, uh, sense of the scope of the challenge until um, dropping my daughters off at school one day and seeing the, you know, a couple hundred students in a big, uh, you know, gathering at the back of the school and a big cloud hanging over them and, you know, quickly realized what was going on. Um, I reached out to Adrian Dix and, and I, I introduced a private member's bill and I, I um, put all kinds of ideas on the table and Adrian Dix and I met several times and had some very collegial conversations about the issue and um, the, uh, the action plan that, that he on behalf of government came out with was, was inclusive of everything I had asked for and everything I had suggested. And that was a, a really good example of you know, cross-party cooperation and I think we we all too often go to the negative and the and the and the critical side of things and and you know what there's we actually can get a lot done together uh, when we check our our partisan politics at the door a bit more than perhaps we do so um, I, I appreciate you uh, you know you know, humoring me there and just throwing some positive ideas out there but um, in terms of, of what you know what the question you asked like what do I think the, the main failures of, of the Oregon government have been uh, First, I, I, I think calling this election in the first place um, is, is failure number one. Uh, the, I mean, parents are worried about their kids in school. We've got uh, small businesses failing by the day, as I said. We've got uh, all kinds of concerns that, that, that we're all feeling uh, for our loved ones in long-term care homes. Uh, there's hundreds of thousands of British Clemens without work. And, uh, you know, this week, last Monday, I was supposed to be sitting in the legislature um, uh, at the beginning of the, the fall session. Uh, through October and November, and I'm not, and we're not. Why? Because John Horgan decided to uh, call an election. And as I said earlier, uh, you know, while we all checked our party politics at the door, um, what's what's extremely frustrating and 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 reflects a tremendous amount of cynicism uh, was John Horgan has he's, you know he decided to take advantage of of the, the goodwill the sacrifices of, of British Columbians and the goodwill of, of uh, British Columbians and the other, all the MLAs of all the parties and to try and capitalize on a, a, a temporary bump in popularity um, that, that often uh, happens for governments 
at a time of crisis. There's a rally to the flag effect. Um, but he decides to break his word, uh, go against uh, the law uh, that, that he changed, um, and call an election one year earlier than it was scheduled. I just, I think that's shameful. Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two is the, the, the NDP's uh, a complete lack of, of, of an economic recovery plan. Uh, I don't even think they understand um, the scope of, of, of the challenge that's out there. Uh, I mentioned the, the one and a half billion that Horgan has sat on. Uh, and, and then when they did come out with uh, an announcement a few days before the election call, um, it, 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 you know, the highlight was, uh, was, was more deferrals of, of taxes owing. Well, deferrals are still deferrals. They're still going to have to be paid. There's a lot of small businesses, for example, that aren't going to be able to, to, to make those payments. And if they were forced to, would, would go out of business. Um, the, the main highlight of the NDP's plan has been a, a task force for tourism um, so that a group of people in tourism who already know what the problems are and are, are staring down a, a, an industry that's been decimated uh, are going are gonna to sit there and wait till this election is over uh, with the mail-in ballot challenge. It's going to be, you know, months yet, I think. Um, and uh, then at some point in 2021, the first half of 2021, presumably, uh, they're going to decide how to dole out $50 million uh, through this tourism task force. I mean, that's just patently ridiculous. So um, I, I, I just don't believe that this government has any capability or, or uh, any interest in trying to figure out how to steer British Columbia economically through, uh, through the, 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 the rough waters that are in front of us. And last but not least, it would be, it would be housing. I mean, we've, we've already canvassed this at length uh, today, but... You know, when you put out a commitment of 114,000 uh, new affordable uh, housing units to be created, and you're, you're, you've, you've, you've opened uh, about 3,000 uh, to this point in your mandate, that's a failure. Uh, when uh, rents uh, have gone up as they have, uh, when you promised that they wouldn't, that's a failure. When you promised a renter's rebate and you didn't deliver it, but you decide to reannounce it in an election campaign, uh, that's a failure. Uh, when housing prices continue to increase, when you said you were going to reduce um, housing costs, uh, that's a failure. Um, Selena Robinson, I think, is, has proven to be one of the, uh, one of, one of the worst housing ministers uh, that this province has ever seen. And, uh, and she needs to be held accountable for, uh, for her record, um, which uh, um, I don't think is a very good one, as, uh, as I've just uh, outlined. I'm a firm believer that big ideas make campaigns exciting. In 2017, the BC NDP offered the spec tax, affordable child care, ending the MSP, low-income housing, a ministry dedicated to mental health and addictions, setting aside judgments on how successful they were in those promises. What are the big ideas that the BC Liberals are offering the province in this election? Well, I think that uh, there's a number of things in our platform to this point uh, which are are exciting and and represent, uh, I think, big ideas. Uh, The $8 billion infrastructure plan uh, that uh, Andrew Wilkinson announced uh, days ago um, represents a a, a very significant investment in in critical infrastructure in every corner of the province. you know, as part of as part of that plan, uh, you know, we would um, eliminate the the NDP's uh, discriminatory, uh, you know, the so-called community benefits uh, agreements, which excludes eighty-five percent of construction workers. Um, I, I think that the uh, the small business, uh, you know, generally our economic recovery plan, but but the small business actions uh, that have been proposed, uh, eliminating the two percent small business tax, uh, a loan guarantee program for the tourism and hospitality sectors, um, where wherein nineteen thousand businesses are 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 suffering greatly, and many of them won't make it if they don't um, get more help from government. Uh, um, reducing property tax burdens uh, of, of small business, helping with, uh, with, with other costs. So I, I think our overall uh, plan for small business is huge. We've talked about the PST. Uh, I mean, we want to get money uh, you know, into people's pockets quickly to stimulate the economy. Um, the best way to do that is to reduce their tax burden. And the PST, because it's applicable to so much of what people purchase, uh, is a is a significant uh, uh, a significant uh, proposal, and uh, you know again as we've already talked about um, the uh, uh, the the private competition that we would allow 
in, in the auto insurance sector uh, is something that um, I think has captured a lot of people's attentions, uh, rightfully so. Uh, uh, so we'll see with, with those ideas and more to come. We're, we're going to have, a, I think, a bold uh, housing plan. I think we're going to have uh, more to say about uh, mental health uh, addiction and recovery and, uh, and, and a few other areas uh, with, uh, you know, time still, still on the clock in this election campaign. We're going to wrap up here. I just have a couple more questions. The, the first, I'd like you to answer in one sentence. I feel like every election we're told that this is the most important and consequential election. If you believe that is true, give, give me your thoughts in one sentence. Is this the most important and consequential election in BC's history? I believe this is uh, an absolutely consequential election uh, for, for, for the simple reason that uh, we have not faced uh, such a massive uh, uh, potential uh, economic catastrophe uh, since the Great Depression. Uh, if, if we don't get right the, the package of measures that are needed to support individuals and businesses uh, in the months and, and years ahead, uh, this province is going to be set back and the people in it are going to be set back for, uh, for potentially a generation. Uh, so that, that, the, the, the proposals that the parties are putting on the table, um, both to keep people safe uh, as we navigate the health challenges that are still in front of us with this pandemic, but as importantly, uh, the, the, the proposals to, to give British Columbians the best shot possible uh, to get through this, uh, this, this pandemic from an economic perspective so they have their jobs, they can keep their businesses and they can still put food on the table for their kids. Uh, man, this is one heck of a consequential election. I want your one minute pitch. And I know that a guy like you maybe doesn't pay attention to the polls, but the polls have been quite consistent. And even though you are in a liberal, safe riding, there may be some voters in Kamloops, South Thompson, that go, you know, maybe we should vote for someone who has a seat at the table. What's your pitch to your riding to reelect you, even if you will be in opposition? Well, I, I take every single election uh, as a, you know, it's a clean slate. There are no safe seats, in my opinion. It's, it's critical to, um, uh, to, to uh, demonstrate to the people that you're, you're asking to vote for you, uh, that you want to represent. Uh, it's critical that you outline what, what your priorities are and, and what you intend on, on, or what people can expect from you. Um, I think in my seven and a half years as an MLA, uh, I have proven that uh, I, I work hard and I deliver results. Uh, we have uh, uh, it, it, we have delivered over five hundred million dollars for two major uh, expansions of Royal Inland Hospital. We've delivered three hundred million dollars in four laning of the Trans Canada Highway just east of Kamloops. We've delivered uh, millions of uh, of dollars in 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 uh, enhanced programs and and capital construction at our university, Thompson Rivers uh, University in Kamloops. Uh, I'm, I, I'm very proud of, of all of the, the progress that we've made together, but there's a heck of a lot of work ahead. And, and, and so what will be critical, whether, uh, whether in government or opposition, uh, what's critical is that you have the strongest voice you possibly can have at that table advocating on your behalf. And I, I think I've, I've, uh, I've shown over the last seven and a half years, uh, I am that strong voice. And um, uh, certainly, uh, I'm, I'm asking the people of Cal and South Thompson for their continued support. Todd, how do people follow you? How do they reach you? What's your call to action? Well, best way to follow me is uh, on Facebook, uh, Todd G. Stone. Uh, Instagram and Twitter, and my, my handles are uh, Todd Stone BC. And of course, uh, good old school traditional email, uh, Todd.Stone at bcliberals.com. Well, hey, I know you're a busy guy, Todd. I appreciate your time. And I know that at one point, you were basically the youngest BC Liberal in caucus. And I think you have a lot to offer the fresh faces of the party as they campaign and as they get into government. So I'm thrilled to see you run again. Thank you again for your time and all the best on the campaign trail. Thanks, Mo. I really enjoyed this today. I look forward to doing it again soon. Absolutely. People... He is the former BC Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure and official opposition critic for Municipal Affairs, Housing, and TransLink. He's the BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops South Thompson. He is Todd Stone. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.
Hey folks, I'm Mo Amir, this is CKNW, and this is your Van Color Moment. I was going to buy a new car this year, but I'll wait. Didn't you hear? A political party in BC will eliminate the provincial sales tax for an entire year if elected. I could save 10 grand on a new Lincoln. With no PST, the province slurps $8 billion out of the public purse in just one year. So we can frolic on a shopping spree even though retail sales already recovered to pre-pandemic levels. And sure, most of your expenses are already PST exempt. Mortgages, rent, food, gas, auto insurance, bicycles, kids' clothing, school supplies, medicine, eyeglasses, dental care, and other medical services. And sure, targeted tax reductions would be more equitable to support families who most need relief. But with no PST, I'll save 40 bucks on a bottle of Krug champagne, 250 bones off a high-end TV, and did I mention the 10 grand off that new Lincoln Continental? Imagine the people buying yachts and Learjets, the millions they will save instead of paying taxes. Rest assured, the PST savings are for everybody. We share the $8 billion, except some of us take, like, a lot more of that $8 billion that otherwise could fund essential community needs like healthcare and education, childcare, affordable housing and infrastructure. But don't worry, deficit spending stimulates the economy. And pay no mind to experts who say that's better achieved by direct spending rather than tax cuts. Don't fixate on surrendering public revenue that could be invested in our communities during a pandemic when they need it the most to overwhelmingly benefit those who need the cash the least as we blow up the province's debt. And definitely don't remind me of the billions of dollars that could have been infused into the public good as I peel out my brand new sedan, 10 grand in hand. This has been your Van Color Moment with Mo Amir on 980 CKNW.